I want to see what that dad bod can do out there. I manhandle that little baby. Pod. That's right, it's an oldie but a goodie. While dad's away, the kids will play. That's right. My name is Zach Lyons. I will be your host of Football and Other F-Words today, Michael Gillum. He is gone. He is at the beach grilling tuna, grilling shrimp, just having a good old time. But I am joined today by Mike Miracles, Mike Herndon. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Miracles. You can follow me on Twitter at F-WordsPod. You can find both of our esteemed, award-winning content over at broadwaysportsmedia.com. You can get your subscriptions today. We have premium content, but we have loads of free content to get you through the season, the off-season. We have soccer. We have Predators hockey. We have Tennessee Titans. We have fantasy football. What don't we have? And this is football and other F-words, just in case I didn't say. Mike, how are we doing today? I'm oh, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. How about probably you? Not, probably not as good as Gillum, right, who is out on the beach down in Gulf Shore. No, North Carolina, I believe. Yeah. He's in the Carolinas. So he's uh, breaking in a new grill that he bought, a Blackstone, and uh, cooking tuna, cooking shrimp. I mean, he's cooking all kinds of things. Yeah, he's uh, he's probably having a better day than me. I would say that's safe, safe to say. Well, I'll tell you who's not having a better day than you, and that is the Vanderbilt baseball team. They lost the College World Series finals to Mississippi State, being outscored 22-2 to over the final two games of the three-game series after starting out and beating Mississippi State 8-2. and And it's not about the story of the game as much as the story of how they got there. And they were legally handed, is the best way to put it, I feel like, legally handed their ticket to the College World Series when Red Hot NC State had several players uh, contract COVID-19. And funnily enough, in my notes, I put contract um, contract uh, baseball. So the baseball is not <laughs> a disease. COVID-19 is the disease. And before we get to the timeline, here's some context. I'm going to try to breeze right through it. This is courtesy of the work done by Kendall Rogers at DLD1Baseball.com. The NCAA has had 64 total championships with 284 events since the second week of February. The NCAA has administered over 130,000 tests with a 0.04% positivity rate around more than among more than 2,700 teams. Only two of the 64 events were in a bubble, the men's and women's basketball tournament. The rest were controlled access events, and that matters. So controlled access events have different testing protocols for the NCAA based on local health protocols. And it's a two-step process. Any unvaccinated member of a team is tested upon arrival to the event. Then they're tested on a routine basis and known basis. So the team knows when they're getting tested. And in Omaha, that was the day before a game. So you got tested when you arrived, The whole any unvaccinated player did. And then you got tested the day before the game. And for the uh, first, it's an antigen test. And if positive, they're immediately sent for a PCR test because antigen tests aren't as accurate. If that's positive, they go immediately in isolation and contact tracing begins. So let's talk about the timeline real quick, and then we'll get into the discussion because I want to provide the facts. Sunday, June 20th, the NCAA confirmed the testing the day before their first game against Vanderbilt back in the uh, actual playoff parts of it to get into the winner's bracket. NC State was given the all clear to play with Vanderbilt on Sunday, June 20th, and they play on Monday. Monday they play. They defeated Vanderbilt one to zero to move to two and zero in the winners bracket. In the this is where it gets interesting. In the post game press conference, NC State coach Elliot Event pointed out a few members of the traveling party, including a player, had caught a bug and were needing some rest over the next few days. He pointed out that other players were dealing with this bug too. The NCAA said they found out later Monday that one of the players who had the bug 
had a roommate removed at some point on Sunday, which created some concern inside the NCAA. So the roommate that left was also sick. And that's where it all started. So this roommate is where this all started. The player that coach said had the bug on Monday, June 21st, tested positive in an, in both parts of the test on Tuesday, June 22nd, which deemed him not clear to participate and thus was directed to isolate. The roommate of the individual who was in direct contact was then directed to quarantine, according to the NCAA. The NCAA later found out that the first individual symptomatic prior to Monday's game, which the coach alluded to in his press conference, the coach did not know at the time it was COVID-19, however, just to make that perfectly clear. Coach uh, and the assistant coach and others were also tested and COVID-19 negative. Okay, so the coach, oddly enough, based on his comments, which we can get into as well, was vaccinated in early March. And the NCAA continued to test the close contacts and hopes they come out. Also on Tuesday, the NCAA sought out NC State to find out which members of the traveling party the coach was referring to. Those people that were identified and tested on June 22nd were negative. Great news. Between Tuesday and Friday, June 25th, NC State attempted to have the roommate of the first individual tested each day to potentially test out and be able to pitch. That request was not granted though the individual wound up testing positive later in the week. June 25th, Friday. Basically, they had to play Vanderbilt at 1 p.m. that day, so it was not considered to be a testing day. However, the the individual who's in close contact with the COVID-positive player was tested in hopes they'd be negative. However, that player tested positive. So that's two confirmed positive tests for NC State players. The same morning, NC State discovered two more players had shown symptoms consistent with COVID-19, so were proactive and sent them over to the Marriott for further testing. Those results arrived 90 minutes before the Vanderbilt game, both positive. So that's up to four players now test positive for right before the game. That took in took um, basically them for the NCAA medical team to further evaluate the situation. Created a 45-minute delay, delay, and the um, two players who tested positive that morning were unvaccinated players. At this point, the NCAA informed NC State that unvaccinated players would be moved from the game and only vaccinated players could play in the game. So he's either forfeit or try to play Saturday, and they actually played. And then basically around 1 a.m., that's when it ended up being just too much for the team. They ended up basically just canceling and forfeiting the game. All that to say that, yes, Vanderbilt basically got handed to handed the entry into the College World Series. But did the NCAA handle this correctly? Because it sounds like they did. It sounds like NC State kind of handled this a little poorly on their end. Yeah, with with all the information that's kind of come out after the fact, I feel a little bit differently than I did initially because it does sound to me now that NC State not only was, uh, you know, obviously had a COVID breakout, um, but they were trying to kind of, I guess, almost skirt the rules or or you know hide the fact that they might have had COVID. Um, I, I guess, you know, knowing what, what might've happened, but to me that, that makes them almost uh, impossible to feel sympathetic towards, um, at that point, because it's like, look, you, you're obviously trying to get around whatever, you know, potential issues will come up if you know, uh, players are testing positive, but ultimately it leads to more players testing positive. They may have been able to continue if it had just been a player or two, uh, that ended up getting, you know, into the COVID protocols or removed from the team for a little bit, you know, while they go through the, uh, the process, whatever it was that you had, I think you had to be out at least seven days or something like that was the, uh, the deal, but it's, yeah, to me, NC state is not a sympathetic figure here, Uh, but I will say that I hate it. The fact that this happened and it skewed, you know, the, the, result of a a championship you know it's kind of a 
this is not the way anyone wanted. And I know this is this isn't the way. I know a lot of people for. Well, I guess, and and I guess I'm a little bit confused because I never saw this out there. But there was some narrative at some point that I saw a bunch of people saying, "What you know, people shouldn't be blaming Vanderbilt for." uh you know this situation and i don't think anyone was blaming vanderbilt i I think people were saying vanderbilt's getting lucky uh, which they absolutely were i think people were saying vanderbilt may not be deserving of the championship which you could certainly argue that they weren't if uh if they had gone on to win um they were getting a huge advantage by being able to rest their their pitchers and get lighter set up for game one of the world series instead of using him and having to go with, you know, uh, their third pitcher who got absolutely shelled by Mississippi State, and uh, you know, then coming back with with Rocker and Lighter on short rest, and we saw you know Rocker struggle a little bit on short rest uh, in, in the final game. So, look, it, it was a huge advantage that they were given, um, and, and obviously a free ticket into the series. And frankly, you know, I, I'm not an anti Vanderbilt person. Um, yeah, you know, I typically root for local teams to win uh but i was i was rooting for mississippi state to win that that championship because i did not want vanderbilt to get handed the free pass into the final because i mean you know i know vanderbilt fans would have denied it till till the end of days but that would have come with an asterisk if he if they'd won the championship it would have come in with an asterisk and i'm sure nt state fans probably still feel like mississippi state should get an asterisk because you know nt state was rolling uh, you know, possibly could have just ran right into the final and, and smacked Mississippi State. So, you know, who knows uh, what would have happened there. But at least I feel like the team that got the free pass did not get the championship as a result. I, I felt like it was more deserved for Mississippi State than it would have been had the, the final uh, game gone the other way. Well, I mean, let's get into a couple of those points that you just made. Yeah, who who blamed Vanderbilt? It's not like Vanderbilt went around. I know that Vanderbilt is a is a very prestigious medical school that probably has easy access to COVID nineteen vials, but they weren't going around giving, you know, you know, dousing drinks with COVID nineteen. I mean, this no one was blaming Vanderbilt, and yeah. and you're right. They were people. What people were saying was that, look if they do win it, there's an asterisk and, and it's absolutely correct. There is an asterisk against the Toronto Raptors, uh, NBA championship, right? There's an asterisk among many things in in sports with championships where something just totally goes off the rails and a, and a team that, that may, may have won, may have lost uh, a championship game or something like that you know, were handed the victory and, and, th- and this is the, they were legally, that's why I put in legally handed the victory because the NCAA has all these protocols. These protocols are well known, right? I mean, maybe not well known, but they're at least known to the coaches and known to the players, right? Because that is the job of the coaches to explain to the players and all this stuff. And this coach and, and it's basically what the coach said was that getting he was basically alluding to that getting the vaccine or not is based on your political values and this is what he told the players and it's not like he was really encouraging his team to get a vaccine vaccination and you can't tell someone to get a vaccination right but i would be explaining to my team that hey this is this is the the cautionary tale if there are still players on this team coming into next year that aren't vaccinated what do you do if you're NC state? I mean, do you still let them play? Because I mean, obviously this cost you last year, a, a chance at the championship. Like it's, it's wild that, that, that it came to this. And I hate it that it came to this because as I said in the stats, the NCAA was rolling, no issues. Right. I mean, a bunch of college kids, which is what everybody in America was worried about was college kids and college athletes getting COVID and it just ransacking everything. Well, the NCAA did it right. And NC State did it wrong. So what does NC State do from here? What do these players do from here? 
that's it's kind of a super interesting deal with the the whole the way the coach handled it versus uh, you know I, and look the political politicization of the vaccine and we aren't going to go too deep into the politics of the whole thing but i think it's ridiculous that we have to politicize everything regardless of what side you're on that it becomes oh well one side it says the sky is blue and the other side has to say the sky is is green or whatever you know it's it it it's ridiculous how we have to draw bright lines between every single issue in this country and, and divide it up between, uh, well, all the red people believe this and all the blue people believe this. And, and it's, it's absurd. And the vaccine is becoming that is one of the most absurd uh, issues um, that has ended up being uh, politicized. But I, yeah, I think, it becomes very difficult for these teams to navigate though. Right. Because like, you can't tell people like if their personal belief is just that I don't want to take a vaccine, you know, I sure I'll get a flu shot, but I'm not going to do this new vaccine or whatever, you know, that's their personal choice. But yeah, at some point the teams have to be able to protect themselves. Like if, if the leagues are going to set forth these protocols to try to keep their players healthy And look, you know, they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Because on one hand, you, you know, if you tell people, you can't tell people they have to be vaccinated, right? You know, or I guess you can, uh, but one side's going to feel like that's totally unfair. On the other hand, if you tell, if you don't tell people that they have to be vaccinated and you don't keep up with it and you don't, you know, protect against this thing for any, you know, way, way, shape or form, you're going to have a bunch of players opt out and, and that's bad for the leagues too. Um, Cause some people are just going to say, Hey, I, I have parents who can't get the vaccine or I have, you know, for whatever reason, or I just don't want to take the personal risk of being out there. Cause look, the vaccine is not as, as with all vaccines is not 100% effective. Like it's not a 100% your bulletproof kind of deal. You know, the, the clinical trials, I think even for the best ones are like at 95%, uh, rate and then it does r- drastically reduce like your uh, you know morbidity rates and stuff like that so it, it is effective but it's not like it's a, a bulletproof thing you could still you could have the vaccine and you could still potentially die from this thing it's extru- it's your odds are super super lowered compared to not being vaccinated but it's not a, it's not a 100% thing. So there could be some players that are just like, I'm not willing to take any of that risk whatsoever. Um, and I'm, I'm opting out if you're going to let unvaccinated players participate. So it's, it's just kind of a, it's a tough situation for the leagues, but you know, I, I think everyone's trying to navigate this thing as best they can, you know, and, and as we get more vaccination in place, I feel like it's going to get better. Uh, for everybody just because hopefully this thing eventually goes away but um yeah it's it's just kind of crazy well it'll be it'll be fun be you you speak on watching teams handle the unvaccinated players it'll be interesting to see what happens with the buffalo bills because cole beasley and josh allen have both been pretty vocal about their feelings on the vaccination and those are two big keys to their championship run and that could cause a problem so it'll be interesting to see how stuff like that gets handled so last night on tu- on Tuesday night, yeah, today's Wednesday. Tuesday night was the match. Bryson DeChambeau and Aaron Rodgers versus uh, lefty Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady, the GOAT. And Bryson and um, Aaron won. They, they won by three strokes. Which leads me to believe to this two things. First, I've already seen the narrative this morning that radio shows are talking. Is Tom Brady likable? Well, Tom Brady's been likable since his first stint on the match, but he's been likable before that. If you, if you haven't enjoyed just weird, random Tom Brady that he is, then you're you're like three or four years late, right? I I, I very much enjoy Tom Brady's. Uh personality in these kind of settings right like he's great on the these things he is his thing where he talked to gronk 
and he was saying, yeah, uh, Aaron's like, you know, 20 feet away from me. He, he's, he leads the Packers, I think, uh, and stuff like that. <laughs> it's just funny. Like he's, he's, he's a funny person. Like he's good at ribbing people. Um, he kind of carries himself in a way that's just like sort of fun. Um, and I, I enjoy him. I, I feel like his personality is likable. Uh, especially when you put him away from a, like a, a football setting where he feels the need to be overly serious and, and uh, you know, very uh, put together. Um, so yeah, I, the Tom Brady is likable thing. Yes, he is a likable person. Um, you know, even if he is hyper annoying, if you root for teams or if you don't like the fact that he's won a ton of Super Bowls and, and everything else that goes along with his football career. But if you separate that out from it, personality wise, very likable. I mean, the dude hosted Saturday Night Live and had one of the most memorable skits that I think about in that forgotten or that easily forgettable streak of seasons that they've had. But where he's speaking with a Boston accent and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I mean, he, he's he's had the personality. The reason nobody's liked him is because of what, you know, he's destroyed teams and it was always winning. Like his personality and, has always been the likable there, version. There's there's the deflate gate stuff and, and all the, you know, stuff tied up with the Patriots, you know, with the cheating and everything, you know, everybody, you know, accusing them of stuff and everything like that. I, I think he gets tied up in some of that. And that's why a lot of people hate him. And I, I get that, but yeah, if you, if you just leave that alone and just say, all right, is this guy personality wise enjoyable? Absolutely. Okay. So that leads us to talk about, Nashville or Tennessee's version of the match taking in only like known Tennessee celebrities. So they, this include country singers, reality stars, athletes, obviously give me a foursome a team versus team. Give me, give me one. I'm very, I'm very interested to see how many of the same people we ended up coming up with. So I, I, I tried, I, make... I got six foursomes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've, just, I've just got one. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Sorry. Three one. foursomes, three foursomes. Okay. Okay. Um, so I've got, uh, I'm pairing up. Uh, I'm going to go Jay Cutler with Taylor Lewan. Okay. Um, just because I, I wanted to get an, uh, an, I wanted to get an active athlete on both teams uh, because I feel like that's kind of the format. Um, and, you know, Cutler being really, he's a reality show star now. <laughs> um but cutler is is a a fun personality but he's kind of low energy so you've kind of got to pair him up with with lawan who's ultra high energy also a fun personality i think they would make a good uh pairing for uh the match and then i'm gonna also go i'm gonna go clay travis and mookie betts uh mookie betts not not quite as i guess well known just because you know at least among some people Baseball fans know Mookie Betts is a very fun personality. Um, he's a he's a local Nashville guy. I wanted to have him in there, and uh, you know he's he's a former AL MVP. Um, and then Clay Travis, I you know hey love him love him or hate him, and there are certainly people on on both sides with him, right? But Clay Travis is one of the more entertaining personalities uh, in Nashville. I think he would be good in this kind of format where I'm just trying to be entertained. I'm not trying to espouse his, his beliefs or anything like that, or, or promote him or whatever. Uh, but I'm just saying in this format, I think he'd be very entertaining and yeah. So that's what I'm going with. You know, Clay Travis never even popped in my mind, but that, that is a good one. And also Clay Travis's history with wanting to uh, draft Johnny Manziel over Taylor Lewan being very vocal when Lewan oh, got drafted. Yeah. That adds a little spice to, to that's yours. That's a good tie in. Okay. Okay. So I'm going to start with Cutler because I did have a Jay Cutler one. Okay. But I had Jay Cutler and Buck Rising of 104.5 versus Peyton Manning and Chad Withrow of oh. Outkick 360. A little bit of quarterback versus quarterback, but radio voice versus radio voice. You know, I thought that would be a good one. A little competing right there. And I think Buck and Cutler, you know, Buck can bring out the best in Cutler. And, of course, he's a little fanboy of a Cutler like, like uh, we are, That's too. True. And then, of course, Chad Wither and Peyton Manning are going to be able to talk crap all day long. They'll probably yeah. physically beat down Buck or mentally uh, break down uh, Buck and, and Jay. 
Don't you, you think? think so? Yeah. yeah. I, well, I mean, Jay's just Jay would be ready to quit at like the eighth hole and just start drinking, you know, or, or he's going to be checking his deer stand from the golf cart, you know? Yeah. Okay. I got the bros versus the boys. So I got Will Compton, Taylor Luan, yeah. the boys versus the bros. Um, oh my God. They're, I didn't write down their names and now it's escaping me. Um, <laughs> holy crap. Uh, Rob and bros? Rex Ryan. Rob and Rex Ryan versus Taylor Luan and Will Compton. That would be great. That's that would be great. CPV right there. Absolutely. You could beat it. Yeah. I forgot all about the Ryan brothers. That yeah. that would that would be excellent. I mean, I don't even know if any of those guys are really good at golf, but you could just make it do instead of maybe the match at some beautiful golf course, just do the match at a miniature golf course and just have them drink beer the whole time. Yeah. Like yeah. an extreme miniature golf course or something. Cause, cause that's the other thing. And I'm not sure how good any of these guys are at golf, it, but that's the Buck other is thing. Supposedly really good. Buck Rising really? told me that he is really, really good at golf. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, cause I mean, as much fun as like the matches, part of the reason that it's actually fun is that these guys are all at least pretty decent yeah. at golf because I am horrible at golf and I don't care how funny or interesting I was. No one would want to watch me play golf because nobody has six hours, uh, which is what it would take for me to hit 140 strokes on a golf course. So, um, yeah, they, nobody would want to. Yeah, you may have to that. switch up to mentor golf on some of these. Okay, so yeah. last one is Brad Paisley and Peyton Manning and versus Tim McGraw. Now, I had to go outside of Tennessee for this one, but Tim McGraw, Eli Manning. Uh, okay. Well, that's, okay. That's a little bit cheating. Eli is not a little bit cheating, but let me, let me say this is that Manning versus Manning. You got to put it in there. Right. And yeah, I like it. And I like the two country singers as well, because, you know, Tim McGraw is pretty competitive. Eli, you know, it has good that there's actually, that's actually extremely marketable by the way. So if someone actually listens and picks this up, there you go. There's your, if you need a competition for the match and you want to compete with TNT or whoever runs these shows, start with that one. You would get so, you'd get a lot of eyeballs on that one. Yeah, I, I really think, I, I think it's a great idea, honestly, for a Nashville version of this. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know, I don't know how you could get it, like just run on like a local level um but yeah like something like you know one of these local channels that does like um you know local broadcasts i, I feel like if you organized this and promoted it you, people would absolutely like you would draw great ratings in nashville for even if it was uh, like you know big joe on the go and ty sambrello versus you know, you know <laughs> something like versus uh i don't know who else is a random random person uh terry mccormick and uh uh you know, Dylan Radunes or something, you know, you know, people would probably still watch it. I, I would probably, I would probably watch. I'm not sure you'd do big numbers. I think that. you'd have to do nine holes. On yeah. That yeah. That may be a uh, half hour, half yeah. hour special. Okay. Speaking of all these Tennessee athletes and stuff, you know, let's talk about the Steve McNair, because I think there's an interesting conversation to be had with Steve and the emergence of Ryan Tannehill. And, and that we are strictly talking we're not talking about Warren Moon, who obviously eclipses both of these guys, right? So when, I, when I'm talking about this, I want to talk about people that have worn a Tennessee Titans uniform just to keep it, keep it simple, keep it relevant, you know, for right now. Steve McNair, I feel, is the greatest example of a Tennessee Titan. I, I think he exuded grit. He he's everything that this team has always talked about being. However, I think there is a conversation to be had whether he's actually the greatest Tennessee Titans quarterback. And I think that Ryan Tannehill is already there. And a couple of things I just want to bring up. He has way more yards per game. He's averaging way more yards per attempt. He has a higher touchdown percentage and a lower interception percentage. Yes, I, I understand that we're talking about um, 26 games versus a ton of games, right? But when you start looking at the stats and start compiling the stats, as a quarterback, as a passer, I think Ryan Tannehill is the best one to wear a Titans uniform 
Now, obviously, I'd still go Warren Moon, then Ryan Tannehill. But that is where I'm at. But I still think that that does not defame or slander Steve's legacy. Steve McNair was much more than a quarterback to the Tennessee Titans. And I think that's what gets lost when you talk about who is the better passer, who is the better quarterback. It's not who is the better Titan. Steve McNair is the better Titan. Steve McNair was everything that you wanted in your quarterback, everything you wanted in a leader, everything you wanted as an example of your franchise. When you're looking back and talking about the Tennessee Titans, Steve McNair is probably the first person that comes to anybody's mind as some some memory tied to that. And that is a legacy that cannot be tarnished no matter what is going on, unless Ryan Tannehill wins the Tennessee Titans Super Bowl. I mean, obviously that changes everything, but he Ryan's still got a lot of years left to go to do anything, but he is not anywhere near supplanting the legacy of Steve McNair as a Titan. Yeah, I, I mostly agree with that. I, I do think McNair is the greatest Titan um, that, that we've had. Uh, and, and there's a lot that goes into that. Like you said, the leadership, the toughness, the, you know, everything that he brought to the franchise. Um, I mean, the guy, the guy won a co-MVP. So, I mean, I, I think as far as pa- a pure passer goes, I, I think there's very little doubt that uh, Ryan Tannehill is a better pure passer uh, than McNair was. Now, if you want to say better quarterback overall and all that goes into that, the sample size with Tannehill is still, still probably too small for me to 100% just say he's been a better Titans quarterback. Now, what we've seen from Tannehill, if you want to just throw sample size out and just say what we see for, from Tannehill, what we've seen from McNair, total uh, body of work as a Titan, Tannehill, there's, there's zero doubt to me, has been better uh, from a performance standpoint overall. Um, now, you know, McNair's 2003 season, even if you look, and I know people are going to say, oh, well, you can't compare stats from, you know, the two eras because they're very different the way the NFL's played. And that's very true. But luckily for us, uh, pro football reference does have indexed stats. So they will index the stats versus that year um, and compare so that you can compare across eras. And if you look at Tannehill's, 2019 and 2020 just about any metric that you want to use to evaluate quarterback performance Tannehill has two of the three best seasons in a Titans quarterback or in in a Titans uniform as a quarterback his 2019 and 2020 seasons indexed versus the era are better than every season McNair ever had besides that 2003 co-MVP season now the 2001 season for McNair isn't too far behind but Tannehill has two of the top three right now um and you know look projecting forward and we've got to see this happen obviously I don't think he's going to fall off very much if at all uh in 2021 2022 this this core on offense is basically locked in for this year and next year if you know assuming the Titans continue to want it to be uh, together, which, you know, if they perform like we expect them to, why wouldn't you? Um, so my question then is if Tannehill performs at the level he has for the next two years, does he pass McNair at that point? And do you have to see him take the Titans to a Super Bowl to do it? Or can he do it without the Titans making a Super Bowl appearance? Well, I don't think there is any concrete, correct way to answer it. And and here's why. In my personal opinion, I don't think that Ryan Tannehill has to take them to a, to a, to a Super Bowl to, if he continues the trend of the thing. Because it does, if he continues to trend and he himself is performing, but let's say the defense isn't. I mean, that's not really, you know, his fault. You know, Steve McNair, the Tennessee Titans had a had a really great defense, too. I mean, there, there's a lot that goes into it. To me, it it's all about he'll he'll never if if he wins a Super Bowl on like a with a bloody sock or something, you know, like Kurt Schilling or with broken ribs, then yeah, if he wins the Super Bowl, does that he may surpass Steve as the greatest Titan. 
I, I, I just don't think he can. I, I, I personally, I think there's too much wrapped up in Steve McNair, the emotional. He had just such an emotional pull with his stint here that it's going to be really hard for Ryan to ever surpass him as the greatest Titan. Right. Well, and like, and, and also I think Derrick always... Henry probably could. I mean, I think if you're looking at anybody on this team, Derrick Henry and AJ Brown can surpass Steve McNair easier than I think Ryan Tannehill can. Um, yeah. And I yeah. think you're right. Cause I think Tana, I think Tannehill is always going to fair or unfair. And, and I think you've got, there's an argument that this is totally unfair. Um, but he is always going to be viewed to some degree as being propped up by Derrick Henry, right? Like, because their careers are tied together at this point, you know, they are, uh, you know, going to be together for their third straight year this year. Um, you know, both of their contracts run through, uh, the 2022 season. And, you know, you would figure if, uh, if they both continue to play or no, the 2023 season, I'm sorry. Um, and if they both continue to play well, they, you know, they may both be extended at that point. I'd, I'd be a little surprised to see Henry be extended again, but um, yeah, it's, they're tied together. I mean, ultimately they're the primes of their careers are tied together at this point. And it's very unlikely barring an injury that you're going to see one of them be isolated uh, in this offense to really see what, you know, who, who is the driver of, all the success that the Titans have had um, on offense the last few years. So it's going to be very hard to separate those two and McNair for, for as good as Eddie George was, I don't think anyone um, McNair doesn't get talked about in the same terms, right? Nobody says, well, McNair was propped up by Eddie George. That That's just not something that, that people use against McNair the same way that they use it against Tannehill and that whether that's in Look, Henry's a better running back than George. Zero question about it. Um, zero. So. Let me let's just reiterate that. There's zero question that Derrick Henry is the greatest Titans running back over Eddie George. Yeah. Oh, no doubt about it. Yeah, he's the greatest. Yeah, you can, running, well, you can make an argument for Chris Johnson, but I ain't here to hear it. No, I, I, I don't. I, don't, I wouldn't hear an argument for Chris Johnson. I would hear an argument for Earl Campbell yeah, still yeah, if you I want to go still, back franchise yeah. wise. Um, but. Yeah, Henry, Henry is very close to just making it a very clear he's the guy um, for, for Titans running backs. But, yeah, it, it's, it's a tough conversation because there's a lot of complicating factors with both these guys. But, yeah, I, I, think, I think Tannehill, is, his performance has been uh, just as good, if not better, than McNair's best uh, over the last two years. So the great Nashville Predators purge has begun. They have traded – winger Victor Arvison to the LA Kings for a 2021 second and a 2022 third probably the first of a few moves as the deadline approaches for them to protect certain players from the expansion draft Mike quick thoughts on this I mean kind of a guy that has a lot of emotional ties to the team with a lot of great memories but was kind of on a downturn here in, in the in the Nashville hockey scene and really he may go on to do good things with LA and get a fresh start. And this may just be good for both teams or both sides. Yeah. I, I, I kind of see it that way. I mean, look, Arvidsson was one of the probably four or five best players from the greatest era of predators hockey that, that we've had uh, in the city. So he's always going to have in, in the way that he played, you know, the being a smaller guy, the energy he played with the speed that he played with, uh, you know, just his, his personality, all of that stuff um, is going to make his, him have a legacy here, even though, you know, he only really, he didn't play here, but, you know, really what, six seasons total, which isn't a, a huge number in the grand scheme of things, but I think he's always going to have uh, a legacy here. I, you won't find really almost any Predators fans who have anything bad to say about Victor Arvidsson. Um, but I do agree. Like, yeah, the last two years have not been good for him. And, and like part of it, I think you can make an argument that his shooting percentage was just really absurdly low and that you could argue, you could make an argument that, yeah, if his shooting percentage just bounces back to what it had been for the majority of his career. And, and the guy's only, 
you know, 28 years old. It's not like he's, uh, you know, ancient, um, that he'll, he'll bounce right back and be, you know, about a 30 goal guy again. And it's certainly possible, but I think if you've watched him play over the last two years, you know, really since the injuries have started piling up, he doesn't have the same burst, uh, in his legs. He's just not, he doesn't have that top gear that he once did, um, which was really his biggest attribute was, was him being able to get out on the rush and, and hammer those slap shots, uh, off the rush. That was, that was where he got a lot of his goals and then being able to get in, in the net, uh, in front of the net and kind of muck things up. Um, he was great at that. Um, and I, I do think at his size, the injuries are going to continue to pile up. And, and I think it's hard for me to see him really hitting another gear, uh, later in his career just because of you know what what he is as a player and I think the Preds were probably smart to get something back for him now coming off of two back-to-back rough seasons and and injuries continuing to mount I, I think I think it's probably a good good deal for the Preds they needed to look you can't at the same time be like well, the Preds, you know, they need to refresh, they need to reboot, you know, all this stuff and then say, well, no, we can't get rid of any of the players because, you know, these are all good players. Both things can be true, right? They they need to get fresh blood in. I think everybody acknowledges that. Now, maybe you wanted Johansson or Duchesne to be the guys sent away, but uh, those guys are harder to trade because of their contracts. And Arvidsson was a guy that, I think performance-wise, you could see a decline coming. He was on a good deal that was very tradable. Obviously, you got a second and a third-round pick for him. Um, so I think this kind of starts the reboot, and it opens spots in the top six for Ellie Tolvanen to be a, a full-time member of that top line, which I think he's ready to be. Um, it opens a spot for Philip Tomasino, the the top prospect, to come in and, and kind of potentially compete there. So it opens spots for some of these young guys that the Preds have been waiting on to really step up. And we've been asking for them to give them a chance, right? Like how much, how many times have we talked about like play the young guys last year? Like this is them giving the opportunity for the young guys to play. And and that's going to come with some sacrifices. And um, yeah, I'll always remember Arvidsson uh, as, as one of the key parts to that, that great run that the Preds had, but I think it's a good deal for the Preds. Well, speaking of good deals, Jeremy Fowler has gone on to ESPN.com and wrote about ranking the interior defensive linemen based on NFL execs and GMs from around the league and coming in at a high number six, which was kind of surprising to me was Jeffrey Simmons of the Tennessee Titans. And he was actually, his highest ranking was 13. His lowest ranking was 15. Highest was three. What did I say? 13? I meant 13. three. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, And the comments were crazy. So no one is Aaron Donald, but he might be the closest, said an NFL general manager. And an NF- NFC exec, he's the one everyone knows is coming. Talent-wise, he's probably top three. He's respected as such, at least how we block him. Highest upside, he just does different stuff and was basically playing – on one leg and was pretty good early on, an AFC scout said. High praise for Jeffrey Simmons. I mean, people are talking about him being top three and that he could, he's the closest to Aaron Donald, which there's, let's be honest, there's a huge gap between Aaron Donald and number two, regardless of who may be at that spot. What did you, th- just real quick, because we got two more comments we got to get to before time runs out. Real quick, what do you think about these comments? I mean, I think as somebody who's watched him and seen the flashes over the last two years, I'm not that surprised. Like, this, you're this not that is, surprised that he might. Someone said that he might be the closest to Aaron Donald. I'm a little okay. I'm a little surprised. A little surprised by that. But uh, talent wise, I agree with them. I, I think his upside is enormous. I think he's still working back. You know, I, I think he was still a little bit working back from the knee last year. I think his, his best football is still ahead of him. I mean, he was a young guy coming in. Uh, you know, we know he, his work ethic is crazy. Um, and he's just physically stronger than, uh, you know, <laughs> for a guy that's not that big, like he's 6'4", 305-ish. 
um, which is not huge by a defensive lineman stand standpoint. Uh, he is immensely strong, um, just ridiculously strong pound for pound. And I think that's where the Donald comp comes in is like this guy throws people aside that he should not be able to just throw aside at that size. And I, I think his best football is coming. I think it's telling that NFL executives are so high on him. Uh, and, and you hear, you saw that like they, they threw in the stats about how much he was double teamed and stuff like that. He was the only threat on the Titans defense for most of last year, the only threat. And he was blocked accordingly. There, there was a lot of now great players will beat double teams and that's what or Donald does, you know, it, it separates himself and everything like that. But I think Bud Dupree, Danico Autry, if they can just draw a little bit of attention away from Jeffrey Simmons, I think he's in line to have a monster year uh, in 2021. Okay, so other comments that I thought were um, kind of surprising came from Delaney Walker, who went on to uh, Teron Davenport's podcast over at ESPN.com and had some surprising things to say about Anthony Ferkser. I quote, he sat under me for years, and I try to teach him everything I know, but the dude's got wiggles. He can get open. He can catch the ball. I think he's going to be elite, Walker said. Just adding Julio, it's going to open more opportunities for him over the middle with matchups against linebackers, and that's going to be hard for them to cover him because he destroys linebackers within seconds. It's going to be good. And he went on to say, I feel like it's going to be a good year for him. I'm excited. I hope he does well because I want him to get paid. That's what it comes down to. Just hope he does well. I know he built his confidence over the years. Now he has that opportunity to be the starter. I told him the last time I saw him, I said, it's your opportunity. Don't lose it because they don't give it to many people often. He has the opportunity to be great. And I think with Julio and AJ and Derrick Henry, that opportunity is high. And Anthony Ferkser was obviously seen and was an active participant at uh, the tight end summit here in Nashville that uh, Kittle and Kelsey put on. He was all he was he was there. Teron was also there covering him, was shooting us video clips and stuff on Twitter. So it comes down to this. We we are big Anthony Ferkser fans, right? We've had him on our show, but when he first busted out onto the scene and started, you know, playing games for the Tennessee Titans, you started a Ferkser for Pro Bowl. Uh, you were thanked by his family. We have long been proponents of Anthony Ferkser, and I this offseason have said that I don't. I think they're comfortable rolling in with Ferkser and Swayman. That seems more and more apparent the longer the offseason goes on. Walker believes in Ferkser. Do you think he's going to be elite, or do you think he's just going to be very, very good? I mean, the word elite gets thrown around too much um, because, like, truly elite, I, I feel like that is Travis Kelsey, that is uh, George Kittle, that is Darren Waller, uh, and that's probably the end of that list um, for me. So to say that he's going to join that class, I don't think is accurate. Um, I think he'll be very good. Uh, I think he has the potential to be very good at least. Uh, it, my question with him was never about – is he going to be able to get open and catch the ball? He's absolutely going to be able to do that. He's done that his whole career here. He's done that against defenses, you know, with, you know, I, I would be very interested to see what he looks like when he does get those opportunities to match up with base defenses where teams are going to have to try to cover him with a linebacker because I think he, like Delaney Walker said, I think he will roast linebackers in coverage uh, you know, you need, he's a guy that you need to put a corner on. And if you put a corner on him, all he has to do, all he has to be able to do is be able to block a corner. Right. Like at that point, and, and I, I think he can do that. Um, so the question is going to be, how much do you get him on the field in 12 personnel um, and get him those matchups against linebackers? Because in 11 personnel and on third downs, passing situations, you're probably going to see a cornerback on him, even with Julio and AJ on the outside. You're just going to put more corners on the field to be able to cover him and match up with him better, uh, unless you have an elite coverage linebacker like a Fred Warner or somebody like that. Okay, last one real quick. We got we to do this one quick. Uh, Teron Davenport has a second quote that I found interesting. Uh, he's talking about who may you know likely get cut, and he brings up Tyson Brelo as a guy that could get cut. 
but he brings up the reason he could get cut, and this is what I found surprising. Second-round pick Dylan Radins, Radins has impressed by playing snaps everywhere except center during OTAs and minicamp. So, obviously, if versatility is the key, and that's uh, Ty Sombrello's only leg up on everything because it's Kendall Lamb, Dylan Radins, and Ty Sombrello, it sounds like to me that he that he may be gone because Dylan Radins sounds, and Buck alluded to it, but he didn't tell us what positions it was, but Teron just told us, Everything but center. What do you think about that? I I think everything that you've heard out of uh, Titans camp so far, or not camp, but Titans practices, the media, everything like that, on Raidens has been extremely positive. It's like the opposite of what we started hearing around this time last year about Isaiah Wilson, right? So um, Raidens, I think he's going to be really good. The coaches have been – borderline raving about him like Keith Carter was extremely complimentary of him um I think I you know of of all the rookies really Raidens is the guy that I've heard the most positive stuff about now obviously we haven't seen Caleb Farley on the field yet so that that could change once we get to that point but yeah your your second round pick uh getting a lot of buzz and and potentially you know even if Lamb is the starter right away, which I think that's kind of what they're preparing uh, Raidens for just in case, you know, if he doesn't win the job, they'd like him to be able to serve as a a utility backup uh, at least until he's able to overtake Lamb at right tackle. But yeah, I I think Raidens working at different spots is interesting and, and reviews have been very positive so far. We would be remiss if we before we left, if we did not talk about on this podcast, if we did not talk about some things that I saw about Carson Wentz and obviously the Jacksonville Jaguars. So let's first talk about Jacksonville Jaguars. They get fined for what? $200,000 for destroying, I guess, each other's bodies, you know, doing physical, physical things that they're not supposed to be doing on during OTAs. So, they they just cannot stay out of the news and stay out of trouble, can they? No, yeah, they they run afoul of the NFLPA uh, constantly down there, and and despite the fact that everyone was told it was Tom Coughlin uh, that that was causing that problem, here they go again. They immediately get fined. Uh, you know, one uh, among the first practices of the Urban Meyer era for yeah, uh, I think one of the reporters <laughs> they ran an Oklahoma drill. Yeah, on the I think I think that was just. <laughs> I think was that, that was joke? A, I think it was a joke, but if okay. it wasn't a joke, holy crap. I think the guy deleted the tweet. So I was I wasn't sure if that meant it was a joke that he realized people were taking the wrong way or that he didn't want to put that out there because or that Jaguars asked him to take that down. Um, you know, it, it's uh yeah, it, but either way, Urban Meyer getting into trouble already. Um the Jaguars cannot stay on in the good graces of the NFLPA. And, uh, yeah, I, I just, everything about this feels like it's going to be a train wreck right now. Now, maybe it, they surprise us and it's not, but God, it feels like it's going to be a disaster down there. It is going to be so bad. So bad. Okay. And, and I want to dive in a little bit about this, not just about Carson Wentz, but about quarterbacks in general, but Zach Hicks over at sports illustrated, uh, he covers the Colts for Sports Illustrated, and he said one of the bigger concerns in Carson Wentz's game is his tendency to not reset his feet after moving in the pocket. In this edition of the Wentz Mechanics series, which I find it to be a hilarious series anyway, I look at this concern on film and dive into some drills that could fix it. And then there's a reply about something that Frank Reich said, where when you hit the reset button, it's an opportunity to rebuild from the ground up. So one of the ways we emphasize just come in and be the quarterback is just coach the heck out of the basics, starting with their stance for quarterback and shotgun. Okay. So we're talking about mechanics. Titans fans are probably getting a little bit of PTSD because this is what we've heard for like three or four seasons about people when they came in to try to coach Marcus was that they got to fix his mechanics, got to fix this, got to fix that. His feet, his feet, his feet. Wentz is going through the same kind of thing. But I want to talk about why people, I don't understand why people think Frank Reich is going to be able to fix this because at this point, Frank Reich is one of the reasons why I'd still like this. He was his coach for this first two years as a quarterback and didn't fix this. And it goes back to me 
to something that I said in our group chat is at this point, it's just got to be a habit, right? Because uh, like, unless you train at this particular mechanic a thousand times a week with in-game simulation, it probably won't change because when you got a 300-pound offensive lineman storming you and your wide receivers are covered, you're going to revert back to whatever is natural to you. And right now, bad mechanics are natural to Carson Wentz, and I just don't think it's going to get fixed when it comes down to game day. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those interesting questions uh, over over the years. You know, can you fix a quarterback's mechanic? Because you see all these guys come come out, uh, and maybe they're super talented and everything, but they've got a funky throwing motion, and everyone you know says, "Ah, well, can you uh, can can you fix that at the NFL level? Because you know that's going to have to be tweaked, or it's going to you know cause problems for that guy." So, like we talked about this a little bit with Cole McDonald. Um, and you know, he tried to fix his mechanic, obviously didn't work. Um, you know, he worked really hard on it over the summer and then he lasted like two weeks in the training camp. Now it's possible that he got cut for something other than, um, his poor, poor mechanics. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting question. You know, I, I know you, I would say you can tweak mechanics, uh, more so than, than fix them. Um, you know, I think Aaron Rodgers is an example of somebody who was able to significantly change his throwing motion from college to the NFL, but he sat for, I think three or four years before actually going into an NFL game. So he got a lot of reps uh, doing that. You know, I know Tony Romo uh, was big on tweaking uh, his mechanics and things like that. People have talked about Josh Allen uh, tweaking his mechanics uh, being part of the reason that he made the big uh, leap from year to year. So I, I think you can tweak um, and footwork is something that I feel like you could probably more likely fix than anything upper body related. Like I, I feel like footwork is, is more fixable. So if it, if the problem is really just when it's not resetting his feet, maybe that is more of a, a fixable trait, but uh, to me, we saw this with Marcus Mariota. That was the same problem Mariota had a lot was he wouldn't reset his feet to throw or he would not, he would get lazy, especially in a, And this was something I picked up on four years ago, even when he was playing well, he was lazy with his feet when he would throw to the right side of the field. So you, you think about a right-handed quarterback stance and, you know, setting your feet. So he had a tendency to just leave his feet parallel to the sidelines and just kind of flick the ball out to the right side or, or not fully close his shoulders and get his shoulders turned to the target before he uh, would go into his throwing motion. And that led to him being inaccurate uh, on, on throwing to the right side of the field. It was something that was a bizarre stat of his where you could look to the left where you have to, you, you physically have to turn because you can't, you know, see the, the, the player, your receiver, unless you actually do physically turn uh, and throwing over the middle, he was pretty accurate. He was among the, the most accurate quarterbacks in the NFL during the 2017 season. But then if you look at him throwing to the right side of the field, he was way down as far as completion percentage. And it was, uh, it, it, I looked at it, it as simply a, an issue of not bringing his feet with him. Um, but that didn't get fixed. I mean, I know they tried to fix it. Uh, that's certainly something that his quarterback coaches, you know, and he had several of them. Uh, and offensive coordinators, which he had several of, would have covered at some point and said, look, you've got to get your footwork right. I know that was something that Matt LaFleur harped on uh, about with Mariota. That was the big thing when he came in was Matt LaFleur was going to focus on fixing his footwork. Uh, and it didn't take, you know, and, and at some point, I think Wentz, is it a mechanical is issue? Possibly that's part of it. But I also think it's a confidence issue. And that's, again, the part, the parallels with Mariota are so strong to me because it's like guy who had early success in the league. Sure, Wentz had more success than Mariota did early, but started to get injured, started to see his play diminish, and then lost total confidence and, and became, you know, a disaster towards the end. It is the exact Mario Marcus Mariota career path. And maybe maybe Wentz going to this situation, he, he gets it fixed and everything where Mariota, you know, clearly hasn't yet. I mean, everyone thought he might overtake Derek Carr. That hasn't happened. 
Um, and he just took a pay cut to stay the backup uh, with the Raiders. So it, it's not like people are banging down the door to get Marcus Mariota to be their starter right now. So I don't, I don't know. I, if he proves me wrong, great. But I, to me, Wentz, until he shows otherwise, is still broken Carson Wentz. Well, and he's going into his sixth season. I mean, the, it seems like the time for tweaking and all that stuff is probably long gone. I mean, it's very like tough you said, to do. like you yeah. said, Aaron Rodgers, he tweaked his stuff when he was sitting on the bench behind Brett Favre and wasn't in a lot of in-game action to create bad habits. Josh Allen tweaked his stuff, but it was also in from year two to year three, and really from year one to year two to year three. Um, unlike um, Carson Wentz, who is just at this point, he's been in the league long enough where this stuff should have been fixed by someone before heading into year six. And two of those years was your head coach that everybody thinks is just going to magically fix it. And let me let me say something. The same offense that Doug Peterson is coaching is practically the same that that led to Carson Wentz being gone and him getting fired. It's basically the same offense. Like he's not learning anything new. He's just going to maybe a better offensive line. I mean, last year the Eagles had a higher pass block win rate than the Colts did. So maybe you know that's going to help and change everything. But he's the receiving core is not better. Maybe even worse because at least there's no there's no Ertz or Goddard down down there, and you know I'm I'm sorry, it's just it's hard for me to think that this is a supreme situation that's going to make the Colts that much better. We've been harping on all 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 off season, which means it's inevitably going to blow up in all of our faces. But um, it's just it's just funny to me that in year six they're still having the same conversation about broken mechanics, just so. It's so deja vu about it's just it just everything about Wentz reminds me of Marcus. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think it's you mentioned the the offensive line and and people talk about sacks and everything all the time as an offensive line stat, but and we've harped on it before and I harped on it when Mariota was getting sacked a million times. It is as much a quarterback stat as it is an offensive line stat. And it's probably more a quarterback stat than it is an offensive line stat. Um, and it's about knowing where pressure is coming from. Like, I mean, yes, if a guy's just getting beat like a drum, there's not much any quarterback can do about that, but knowing where your threats are, knowing who you're, you know, where your outlets are for, uh, you know, if they bring pressure, things like that, being a step ahead of the game mentally is something that helps your offensive line so much when your quarterback is able to get you out of trouble when they do bring pressure. Um, and, you know, if, if a guy, if an offensive line is getting dusted with, with the four man rush, like, you know, the chiefs backups were in the super bowl uh, against the uh, uh, bucks pass rush, not a whole lot anybody can do about that right but you know that's not the case for most games um and most offensive lines and philip rivers was outstanding at keeping the colts offensive line out of trouble that's one of the best things that philip rivers does is that he gets the ball out quickly he knows where the ball needs to go and he i mean he's a complete statue but he's hard to sack because he is mentally so far ahead of you I don't think Wentz is going to be that kind of quarterback. He does have the propensity to play hero ball. And I know that's something that they're trying to you know, rein in with him, but I, he brought a lot of those, you know, 50, whatever sacks that he took last year uh, on himself. That's just the fact of the matter, uh, you know, and, and wide receivers, I think the Colts wide receiver crew is a little bit better than what he had with the Eagles last year, but uh, not a ton. I'm not a big Mike, Michael Pittman guy. I think T.Y. Hilton's best football is behind him. Um, and Paris Campbell is never healthy, so we don't really even know what Paris Campbell is. So I, I don't know that there's anything special there. So I, I don't know. I just there's too much um, there's too much uncertainty with the Colts that I don't think a lot of people are talking about for some reason. People seem to just think that this is a plug and play. Oh, the Colts' offense is going to be awesome. I 
I think there's almost more uncertainty with the Colts offense than virtually any offense in the NFL right now, because it's just, you're needing to see a lot of guys play better than they ever have before for them to reach their goals uh, this season. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see, but it's, uh, it's not the clear cut great offense that a, a lot of people seem to want to make it out. To be. Well, that has been football and other F words. What a fantastic show. We had so much to get to and it's the off season. We are finding numerous things to talk about stuff everywhere. And that bleeds into broadwaysportsmedia.com. Get there today, head a subscription, you know, sign up. If you haven't signed up, what the heck are you waiting for? Get there, sign up, be part of the community, the Broadway sports community. My name is Zach Lyons. You can follow me on Twitter at FWordsPod. He was Mike Miracles, Mike Herndon. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike Miracles. This has been Football and Other Efforts, and you have just been effed. A Broadway Sports Media Production.